In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there are a couple of phrases that I think tell an entire story. In other words, when you hear them, you pick up on details and things that are left unsaid. And one of them is, I just couldn't resist. You can probably come up with a half dozen stories of your own. I just couldn't resist, as in, I'm trying to cut down on caffeine, but this week was so hot and the Dunkin' Donuts was so close, and I just couldn't resist. I know that Sue didn't want me to tell anyone about her new boyfriend, but my friends got to gossiping a little, and I just couldn't resist. Or my favorite, from a blog post about someone's visit to the British Museum, captioning a photo of an ancient Assyrian column with the first example of writing. Nate, please don't tell Kate this story. I know it says, kindly do not touch the displays, but I just couldn't resist. I just kind of had to hug them. I just couldn't resist. I knew the thing I was about to do was wrong, but I did it anyway. It's a feeling the Apostle Paul knew all too well. I do not do what I want, he writes, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Has this ever happened to you? I suspect it has, at least to some of you, from the smiles and the laughs. Maybe it's a vice that you can't give up, or a New Year's resolution that you couldn't keep, or the simple daily reality of procrastination on something you want to do but can't. It's clear that sometimes, even when we know the right thing to do, we just can't make ourselves do it. And sometimes, even when we know that something is wrong, we just can't resist. Now, Paul isn't writing to his therapist, of course. This isn't a confession to a trusted friend. In fact, Paul's letter to the Romans is his only letter to a congregation he hadn't started himself. It's the one where he doesn't know his readers face to face. And so rather than addressing some particular issue in the church in Thessalonica or Corinth, he writes to the great imperial city of Rome and lays out his big theological vision. So this isn't a description of a personal problem that only affects Paul, as if he's uh, written this big theological treatise and then he has an aside about, you know, I just can't do the things that I want. This is a claim about human nature. This is Paul's description of human psychology. He describes a pattern that we know to be sometimes true ourselves, that there's a big difference between thinking you should do something or wanting to do something and actually doing it. That knowing something is wrong doesn't always stop you from choosing it. Martin Luther called this the bondage of the will. In other words, it's as if our willpower, our ability to do what we know is right, is in chains. It's inhibited. It's constricted somehow. And this sense of unfreedom feels like a struggle with some external foe. If you think about that phrase, I just couldn't resist, there's a difference between I, who knows and wants to do what's right, and something else is, that's compelling us in a way that is irresistible. We tend to identify with this part of ourselves that knows what's right, of course, and the other thing feels like a foreign object, like something else that is inside us. 
Paul calls it the sin that dwells within me, something separate from his inmost self. And he experiences that struggle as a kind of war between the law of my mind and another law, the law of sin. He faces this struggle with bafflement. I know what's right, he says. I just can't do it. Something comes over me, and I just can't resist. And so I do not understand my own actions. I think we can all accept that this is a fairly pessimistic view of human nature and our ability to do good. Um, But I think we can probably also accept that it's more or less true, at least some of the time, for all of us. And in a paradoxical way, if this is Paul's central idea about what it is to be human and what it is to try to live a good life, it's both pessimistic and, in a strange sense, kind of good news. It's good news because if you find yourself thinking that this sounds a lot like you, if there's some unhelpful behavior you find yourself repeating again and again, however much you try to snap out of it, or some words that come out of your mouth that you immediately regret and knew you shouldn't have said even at the time, then I hope you realize that it's not just you who's afflicted with this problem. It's not just you who struggle with whatever the thing is that you struggle with. It's me. It's Paul. It's everyone around you and every human being who's ever lived, asterisk, maybe not Jesus. We may all struggle with different things at different times, but we all struggle with this divided human will, this gap between what we know and what we want and what we actually do. And when you fall into that gap, it's not as if it's an individual failing, as if you're the only one who does this sort of thing. It's a pre-existing condition of being human. And this is what allows Paul to write from this position of empathy, not of judgment. In fact, this colors everything else that Paul has to say in all of his letters about sin and righteousness, about grace and forgiveness. Because he doesn't write like a preacher standing up in a pulpit, pointing down at the pews, and say, you do not do what I want. He says something very different. He stands facing God and lets us in on his prayers. I do not do what I want, and I do not understand. But at the same time that Paul claims that we're imperfect, that our will is fundamentally captive somehow, he continues to proclaim that we are fundamentally good. I don't love Paul's dichotomy between the mind and the flesh, the will and the members, as if the body were the source of sin. This has been a sexist trope since before Christianity began. But I respect what I think Paul's trying to express which is the goodness of the true self, of the inmost part that delights in God, that delights in doing good, despite the presence of this resisting force. He doesn't condemn you and you and you as miserable sinners because you just couldn't resist. He acknowledges our collective struggle against something that is outside ourselves, in a sense, even though it dwells within us. And so far, this is good news, although it's a pessimistic take on human nature. It's potentially life-changing news. If you're convinced that you're the only one, after all, who suffers from temptations or regrets, then the natural response of shame is to hide things away, to pretend that everything's fine, to suffer alone. But there are very few things in human life that benefit from being suffered alone. 
and to be reminded that everyone struggled in a similar way from the Apostle Paul himself down to the present day is to be invited into the kind of honesty and compassion that come from this very human solidarity. But that's not the only good news here. It's wonderful to be freed from the shame of being the only imperfect person in the world, but we need more. We want more, don't we? We don't just want empathy when we mess things up. We want to stop messing them up. At least I do. We want to be more free to be the people who we can be and who we want to be. We've learned over time that we can't do it on our own by the force of our own willpower, no matter how hard we try, and so we're left asking the same question of Paul. Who will rescue me, wretched man that I am? We need someone to save us, to help us. And in he comes, riding on a donkey, like it's Palm Sunday in the heat of July. It's much too easy and uh, simplistic of an answer to end a sermon with, and the answer is Jesus. But as you know from Sunday school, the answer is usually Jesus. And it is, after all, a core conviction of the Christian faith that Jesus will ultimately set this right. That the ultimate and final answer to the problems of sin and evil and death are that Jesus sets us free. That Jesus rescues us from the power of sin and death, that he sets us free from the waterless pit, as Zechariah says, that one day all that has been hidden will be revealed, and we will know God face to face. Amen. But in the meantime, this work has already begun. Jesus has come and taught us, leaving us with a deeper understanding of what is good and what is right and what it means to love. Jesus has died and risen breaking the ultimate hold of evil over us, even though that victory is not yet apparent. And Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to be our advocate and guide. And just as Paul imagines that sin dwells within me, so Jesus has promised that the Holy Spirit will dwell within us. And we're not alone in our struggles. In fact, to the extent that we do anything right, it's the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's God working within us to strengthen us and support us and lead us. And through it all, God looks upon us with compassion, supporting us when we need strength and forgiving us when we fail. Jesus looks at each one of us, knowing us more deeply than anyone else, knowing the things about us that we've never told anyone else, listening to all of our inner turmoil and replying with the words he says in this morning's gospel. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen.